Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, I'm joined by Timothy Boucher and Jeremy Puma to discuss their work exploring the history and culture of the ancient, enigmatic Quatrian civilization. This is no mean feat, as you will find very few direct references to Quatria on maps, in historical texts, or recorded in archaeological investigations. Imagination, legend and myth are the means by which it has survived the many millennia since it fell. This has informed the way that Tim and Jeremy have uncovered the story of this culture, most notably a book called The Lost Direction, written by Tim, and The Oracle of the Hypogeum, a card deck created by Jeremy and Garrett of the Liminal Earth Project. To say more than this would spoil the interview, I think. So without further ado, here is that conversation. Enjoy! Tim and Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's good to be back. Hello. Yeah, Jeremy, it's great to have you back on. And, and Tim, it's great to have you on for the first time on the podcast. I think I'm going to start this episode with the simplest question. What is the Quatria theory? Uh, so I think basically the, the simplest way to think about it is that it's a theory that says an ancient prehistoric civilization uh, may have existed before the last ice age that they were very advanced they traveled the globe um, they had a headquarters in what we think of now as antarctica and um, their defining characteristic apart from all of that was that they had a civilization that was dedicated to music right okay it's um i would say it's similar to if you're familiar with the silurian theory mm -hmm. that uh you know says that <clears throat> Over the span of millions and millions of years, um, it's possible that, you know, another ancient civilization has existed and there's just no trace of it anywhere um, that we would recognize. So, you know, it's either under the sea or, um, you know, similar to uh, the the Quatrian idea that... Um, <gasps> Uh, all of the so so yeah. Let me back up. So there's the the theory behind the Quatria uh, that the evidence for this civilization is that um, their technology was based on materials that we and our society don't often use. So um, their houses were made out of uh, living plants, for example. Um, their uh, their vehicles were made out of um, like reeds. Uh, you know, sort of raft. So anyhow, the idea is that after millions of years, um, these these traces, this evidence of, of Quatria, uh, the physical traces no longer exist in a form that's recognizable to us. Um, but you can kind of you can kind of find echoes of it uh, within various, you know, oral traditions, within myths and folklore. Um, Tim, does that sound about right to you? Am I rambling? Uh, no. <laughs> That's about right, yeah. Cool. Uh, that's really interesting. I, I remember when I first started reading about Quatria. Uh, it's one. I think it was one of your articles, Jeremy, on on Medium. Uh, I was intrigued mm -hmm. as to whether this was something that was real, or you were writing about something to sort of 
like create a new mythology almost to get it was a means of trying to better understand um how myths work and and some of the themes that that are within the quatrian civilization that you just mentioned so how did you guys start writing about this civilization yeah i mean i think those are those are all good questions and i think um the history of quatria is something that uh We've seen, as Jeremy said, bits and pieces of it maybe hidden in other kinds of traditions. And I think our process has kind of been um, to tease out the, those remnants of uh, of stories and of myths and stuff and and figure out, like, is there a bedrock uh, thing that they came from? You know, like, is there something in the past or like deep within the human psyche um, that kind of causes us to see similar stories around the world. You know, like we've seen it all over the world, myths of uh, vanishing islands or lands that once were, but have gone away. So we've kind of been thinking about that stuff for a really long time. And uh, Jeremy and I have been writing together um, in various forms on the internet for, for over a decade, really. Mm-hmm. And one of those projects um we were working for a company called early clues and we were uh, employed as writers by them and um we started to develop a lot of that material at that time just kind of this these references to this ancient civilization and kind of exploring you know what was it what what are these references that were that we're finding that that kind of like resonate in ourselves and and almost almost make us feel like we're remembering something from a dream or remembering something that we once knew long ago. I think that's the feeling and the genesis of it for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also a component, I think it almost, um, you know, before the history, sort of the mythic aspects of it came out. Um, I know we were talking about um, uh, Anthor. Uh, Anthor is sort of the quatrian. um, I don't know. it's, It's hard to say. I don't think we would call it a, a god more like uh um it's i think that the the in the mythic sense the quatrian mythos is uh it's very animist and spirit based um similar to shinto i would say so like kami um where there are these you know significant sort of major powers that uh influence myth and society um in ways that are very mysterious and anthor is sort of he's always pictured as a stag uh, and he's sort of the preeminent um, power in Quatrian mythology. And I think that, that that's in a sense that we may have been, um, I think I view it sort of as a uh, a genius loci. Are you familiar with that term? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a spirit of place. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the it, it's almost as though this spirit of place um, was placeless uh, and, and sort of came through to us and has been communicating through um, dreams and through uh, a visionary a sort of a creative imagination um, in a Jungian sense, like the Jung's Red Book kind of, um, that, that has allowed us to sort of reconstruct the myths. And as the myths come through, um, they give the story meaning and um, have allowed us to explore the Quatrian story uh, even further. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, reading, like reading the Lost Direction, it, it definitely has that that mythic quality, sort of a the feeling of a of a story that has no human author. It's just 
it's just one of those sort of stories that doesn't seem to have that quality about it. It's, yeah, it is. It is mythic. So talking about Quattro itself, can we just talk a little bit about like, how how old it is and how how that civilization sort of works? Can we have a little bit of a narrative for it in terms of a timeline? I mean, I think the the timeline is is probably disputed depending on who you talk to, but I would put it at millions of years ago, um, which. It's also important to understand that there were many different periods in Quatrian history. There's the ancient period, there's the early period, there's the early ancient period, and there's a whole, a whole uh, like that. And throughout Quatrian history, it hasn't just been one uh, group of people or one ethnicity or one culture. It's been a succession of different peoples and, and even animals um, over time, which inhabited that that realm or that zone uh, that we today are, are calling Quatria. Mm. And um, that civilization was uh, centered around Antarctica. I mean, what is it about Antarctica, do you think, that that always draws people to, to these kind of myths? I mean, it's always associated with lost civilizations. Yeah, I mean, it, Antarctica is crazy because it's this huge part of the earth, the earth that only a few people go to. Like, there are people that work at, at the stations and stuff down there, but it's this giant, enormous part of the planet that we just kind of ignore. So it's like, I think it's natural that people uh, want to speculate about it because it's it's strange and it's almost alien environment. You know, it's like it's icy and it's like a a moon or another planet or something, you know? So I think that's natural that, that people want to explore these, these ideas around Antarctica. And also like, if we think about it in, in historic, historically, it was once at a different position on the planet. Um, it was at more of an equatorial position. And, uh, if we go back to like Gondwana land and all of that stuff, um, things have changed a lot for Antarctica. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, and it used to be, you know, it, at various points in Earth's geological history, it's been, you know, a tropical paradise. It's been, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's been fertile. It's it's hosted forests. Um, you know, there are dinosaur fossils that are found there. It's, you know, it, yep. it, it, you know, there's no there's no question that, you know, at one point it was green and full of life and you know the the idea that there could perhaps be um traces of a civilization that we can't really understand or perceive you know buried under that ice is um you know i i don't think it's it's too far of a stretch of credibility to to go in that direction Mm, definitely so tim you wrote a book called the lost direction yeah can you just talk a little bit about the that title because it, it, yeah, I feel like it, it is kind of significant to, to that civilization, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that the title of the Lost Direction it uh, it refers to um, what used to be a fifth uh, cardinal direction. So we have north and we have south and east and west, but we believe that there was a, a fifth direction that uh, was lost for various reasons. So. The book is kind of about that, um, but fictionalized through these tales that that were handed down to us about Quatrian culture, um, kind of some of their their founding myths, 
and um, it tells the story of a of a fisherman who gets lost in Quatria and then has to go back uh, to his home, and then for various reasons has to go back to Quatria. But in order to travel between these realms or dimensions or whatever, um, they have to go into the lost direction and they have to like refind uh, this myth missing path between the worlds. Right. Okay. Such a novel idea. When you were writing the Lost Direction, how did this, how did this come to you? I mean, I'm, I'm clearly you're a very imaginative person, but where you, you guys have been talking about kind of uh, Jungian ideas about how this, yeah, how this yeah. information, what this information, what what Quatria really is. So, can you talk a little bit about how you sort of wrote yeah. the book and and how that is fundamental to sort of understanding Quatria? Definitely. So just to, to, re- to make the reference, like Carl Jung is like the famous psychologist who, uh, among other things, he, he advocated this idea of active imagination, where I would kind of differentiate it from daydreams, where like daydream, it's more like you're sitting around, you should be doing something else, and that idea comes to you and you just kind of follow it. But I think what he, he talked about with active imagination, um, he wrote this book called The Red Book, where he basically had these like deep personal, transpersonal psychological experiences uh, within himself uh, and tried to kind of like transcribe the characters and the figures and stuff that he met there. Um, it's, it was not a really a scientific work. It was, it was, and he, he himself, I think he said that it, he, he didn't see himself as an artist. You know, he, he saw himself as kind of this like documenting his experience. Um, so I guess I took a lot from that, uh, that approach and that idea. Um, and Jeremy and I have talked about kind of like creative techniques or, or meditation or visualization for a long time. And I've always, I've always had trouble with those kinds of practices. Like I'm not disciplined enough, um, <laughs> to pull them off <laughs> and I really benefit from them in the, in the way that I, I feel like people on the internet who, who seem really smart benefit from them, you know, um, but I have had some success with this idea of like just trying to like close your eyes and and like listen or watch like inwardly and just sort of see what happens. You know, like I'm not trying to calm the mind or or like release yourself from karma or something, but like just to see like what's there. Um, you know, like what are you thinking about deeply or or what are you like really pondering? And so, sometimes when you do that, you, you can have like kind of these flashes, like an image of something. Um, I know I use this a lot when I was writing the book. Like I would kind of go in my garage and I would like be writing and then I, I would not hit a block, but I would kind of stop and I would just kind of like close my eyes and like sort of look around and see something. And then suddenly it was like, boom. So I, I would kind of follow this this track. You know, I remember one thing that I saw in a, in a moment like that, uh, while I was writing, it was a purple flower, uh, that was in the woods. So that was something that, that got, got somehow like drawn out of my subconscious through this process and just kind of spontaneously emerged. And then it kind of gets woven into the narrative. Um, and it's interesting, like I, I've had that, that kind of process a lot for different ideas in the book. And what I've seen is like that, there are intersections with other people's experiences that you don't expect or that you never, you never planned that 
they would be like, oh, I've had this idea or I've had, you know, this, this, a dream that was like that, you know, like we've, we've kind of had that experience with a number of different things uh, around the book and with, with some of the stuff that Jeremy's been doing too. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Did you find as you were writing the book that your sort of your understanding of what quattro was changed? I mean, that, that probably sounds like an obvious question as you were writing the book, but how did your sort of understanding of quattro change as you were writing the book and, and did it? I mean, I, I think it definitely changed and it. It got really deepened, you know, like one of the first things I did before I started writing was I drew a map um, of this, this landscape. Uh, as I thought, or as I imagined it, or however you want to say it. Um, and then from that, I started to kind of like label places on it and think about like the relationships between these different entities and this landscape. Um, and then from that, there would be like, kind of like, oh, there's a story that happened here or because of this trade that went on between these regions, you know, like there's a kind of a typical relationship that you you tap into. And then like, you think about like, what are the the animals that live there, you know, like the birds, whatever. Um, and it's, there's sort of this world building process that of course, you know, you discover it along the way. Uh, it's hard to like, suddenly one day you have all of it. It's, it's not like that at all. You know, it's like you go every day, like going to work and you, you develop it and you, uh, you draw it out from wherever it's hiding. Um, one thing I wanted to quickly jump back to about Antarctica is that over the summer, there was a really weird news story that came out. If anybody remembers where, they were saying that scientists found uh, an alternate parallel dimension in Antarctica where time flowed backwards. Does anybody remember that? <laughs> Very vaguely, yeah. Yeah, ve- yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but like the reason I want to bring that up is because like there's really a lot of this parallel world, like just below the surface, you know, like the hidden dimension feeling that mm-hmm. I think like that really. It, it really is a major part of this work for me. Um, and it's almost like um, the further I've gone down this path of like, of developing or, or finding some of these stories in some cases, uh, you get better at finding it. You get better at knowing when you're, you're hitting the right notes and when you're hitting the wrong notes, you know, like I might go to Jeremy and I'll be like, Oh, I, I came up with this thing about Quatria. Like, does this sound right? And I, I kind of run it by him. He's like, Oh yeah, yeah. That that's definitely that makes sense. And it's interesting at a, at a certain point, because like, if a couple of people can agree on a thing that the, the existence of is questioned, um, does that mean that things that are imaginary have their own properties? Do you, does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. Like, it's kind of like you're, you know, it's like, is there a test for quatria? You know, like, is this quatrian or is this not quatrian? And, and in a weird way, uh, after you've gotten deep enough into the universe, you can say, you know, you can run the test and you can get an answer, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll find, we'll find like, um, you know, in interesting articles or, um, you know, little bits of folklore and we'll run them by each other and say, this sounds like something that... Um, you know, relates to Quatria and, you know, sometimes it'll be very obvious, like, oh yeah, that has uh, the Quatrian feel to it. <laughs> and then other times it'll be like, mm, I don't know, I, I'm not seeing it as much. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely understand what you mean. I do get the sense sometimes that the imagination isn't 
just a, like a, a faculty of mind. It is a connection to something. Yeah. Um, you know, thoughts, thoughts come to you. I mean, often people will say uh, something just came to them, a thought or something. And, and, they, and they say that offhand as a, as a turn of phrase, really. But I do think that they can literally come to you. They, they seek to be sort of made manifest in, in the material realm. I, I suppose, is that a fundamental part of that civilization? I don't want to kind of get hung up on on its actual existence because I know that defeats the point, but I suppose it's a fundamental part of Quatria that it was a, a civilization that, that worked in that way. It has, it has that aspect. Or was it something that there was a real place and now in order to kind of rediscover it it's something that you kind of connect with in an in an imaginal way well i think the the mystery is fundamental uh to the whole thing you know like um to both our experience of it and if we could say that it has its own experience of itself i i think that um in the the quatria legend um there is something called the mysterium that uh it's one of the central elements that's not discussed very much but it's kind of like one of the the hubs around which other things revolve and uh i think we we try to embody that in our in our work with it you know just like respecting the mystery of uh one's own inner experiences because uh there's a lot of like depth and and power and importance uh in your experience and in being able to share it with somebody to be able to bring out um, those ideas, whatever your feelings, you know. Hmm. I'd also say too. Um, I think that you know, beyond just the shared experience that that Tim and I and and Garrett uh, Kelly, who also does Liminal Earth with me, um, have uh, have had together. Um, the we have noticed that um, bits and pieces of Quatriana, as it may be, um, start to manifest in different ways in real life. Um, that I should not, which isn't to say that, you know, the imaginal realm isn't real, but, um, you know, when we, when we created, uh, the Oracle of the Hypogeum, um, it, uh, oh, on, on a side note, is it pronounced Hypogeum? <laughs> It's one of those words that you <laughs> only ever see written it. down, right? Like, <laughs> I only ever see this word written, um, but I, I say hypogeum, so that's I'm going to continue saying it. Um, is that you know? Wait, so we've, we've made the oracle. Of, yeah, I was going to ask if you could just give a quick uh, explanation. Of what is of what the hypogeum is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the hypogeum is a is a mythical concept. Um, it's sort of the uh, so a, a, an an actual hypogeum is um, there are these these underground structures. They're found all over um, sort of the Mediterranean area, uh, in particular. Um, and you know the most famous one is in Malta, and uh, these giant underground sculptures that were created um, in in prehistory. Uh, these and they were used for everything from ritual purposes to, you know, to who knows what. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're chock full of symbolism, you know, the womb, uh, they're often found with images of, um, you know, the goddess and, uh, but in Quatrian lore, the hypogeum is sort of the dwelling, the entrance or the dwelling space, um, of the, the world of spirits or the world that came before, 
Um, and it's where Anthor sort of abides when he is not uh, walking around on the earth. So um, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of the origin, but also the goal. Um, and then, you know, on, uh, on festival days, um, so the Quatrians had a, a festal government. So their government was um, based on um, uh, sort of mystery plays uh, and festivals and on festival days. So we would say, for example, um, on the around the 31st November for uh, October 31st November 1st um, the hypogeum opens and um, so this is this is just one of the myths uh, that, that I'll, I'll, I'll use to, to I'll refer to often so I'll, I'll kind of go into it further um, so on October 31st November 1st the hypogeum opens uh, and at that point the monsters that Anthor has been keeping prisoner um, escape into the world and they are sort of free to go out in the world and, and cause whatever chaos and trouble they can. Uh, but then around the winter solstice, around, you know, December 21st, um, Anthor and he has a, a team of magicians who work with him. Uh, Anthor and his magicians sort of ride forth. Uh, and it's sort of a mirror of the, of the Santa myth because, um, you know, instead of uh, eight, reindeer and one magician it's eight magicians and one deer <laughs> uh, and they go into the <laughs> world and then they round up all the monsters um and they drag them back into the the hypogeum and at that point everyone you know in the quatrian village would have you know a big sort of festival and solstice and and the light returns again so you know it's sort of this very this very mythical place and uh to return to my point from earlier you know, we've we made the this this card deck basically called the Oracle of the Hypogeum based on Quatrian symbols, and we um, you know we've sent it out to a bunch of people. Um, you know, people have been purchasing it, and and it works. I mean, these are like you know, it's it's gives very accurate readings. Um, you know, these these sort of ancient Quatrian concepts are sort of coming to life for people throughout. Um, who are using this Oracle. Um, and, and even though they, they really haven't had the same experiences that we've had with the Quatrian civilization and Quatrian myth. So, you know, it's, it is an unfolding of something. Um, and I also like to think of Alan Moore, uh, who, you know, his basically, he would yeah. say that art and imagination and magic are all identical. Like they're the same process. You know, an artist is a magician, and in Quatrian culture, um, the word for magician was identical to the word for musician. There was no; they didn't use different terms for those. So, you know, it's it's just a lot of it's it's there's a lot to it, and a lot of it is is unfolding kind of as we go. But it's not just limited to me and Tim and Garrett anymore. It's it's kind of expanding into the the rest of the world as well. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm. You, you guys very generously sent me a, well, a copy of the Lost Direction and the, the Oracle, which I've I've been using and I, I I've really enjoyed. Apart from a couple of times I've drawn the like the Memlin card, it says you have to stop the reading immediately, <laughs> which I've done. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So Jamie, can you talk a little bit more about your how the Oracle was created, like that that sort of creative process, because mm -hmm. it's very detailed, and I'm just wondering what that process was like creating that deck. Um, yeah, you know, it was very, um, you know, I would like to say that 
you know, I tapped into some sort of deep unconsciousness, but really it was sort of um, just based on the, the, the symbols that would have been used during Quatrian society, um, both mythic and otherwise. So, you know, they were a very, you know, it's, it's kind of a cliche to say like they were a nature based society uh, because they understood everything as being part of nature. Um, <clears throat> But so you have, you know, the powers like the Anthwar, as I was speaking of before, and um, a Barbaro, who was, you know, an owl power who represents um, ambiguity. Um, There's Acho. Acho is um, basically a rock (laughs) that represents uh, stability, but um, also generation, because uh, in the in the Quatrian creation myth, um, Acho is sort of the foundation of, of life. Um, and then, you know, there's, so there's other, but then there's other things as well, like the plains or the forest or mountains, things that would have been, uh, of import to the Quatrian people. Um, and then there's eight magicians and eight monsters who also have, uh, mythic qualities, as I was explaining earlier from the, the myth of the, the hypogeum and the creation process. Um, so we had, we, we've been using something that we, we had just called the method, for a long time. And, um, you know, it's, there's, there's an article that's actually an excerpt from a, a book, um, on medium that we had written called Quatrian remnants in Italic folklore and culture. Um, it's from 1908 by an author named Edwin Palmer. And he was kind of this Charles Leland kind of guy, the Etruscan Roman remains. He would go around and just get these bits and pieces of Mediterranean folklore. Uh, and it sort of explains what you do as you sort of develop your own way of entering the hypogeum and sort of a half, um, sort of a hypnagogic state, hypnagogic, however, again, you say it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, it was just as Tim was talking about earlier, you just go in and you see what happens. And one of, during one of these sessions, you know, while I was sort of in there, um, you know, I saw this, this great stone book uh, in the middle of a, a vast underground cave with, with glowing, blue fungi on the walls, which all sounds very mystical, but was actually, um, when I came out of it, I was like, oh yeah, that was just obvious. It was just like, oh, I just went for a walk and saw this. And, um, you know, some of the symbols were in that book. Um, and then, you know, developing it further, you know, we just kind of all talked and, and tested it out and tested it against the, the Quatrian mythos and, um, you know, what we know already about divinatory tools and um, started sending out test packs to people and, you know, got great results, started using it on uh, Twitter a lot to do readings for people. Um, And it works. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an incredible tool. Um, And we have, we have some further designs for it that uh, hopefully in the next year we'll be announcing as well. So. Excellent. So, I mean, with, with the creation of this, I suppose you're bringing this civilization back a little bit. Yeah, I like to think so. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of see it almost as like the the Mandela effect where people start to feed back into like the nature of reality and then it becomes kind of potentially more and more uh, real in this plane also. Hmm. Yeah, I mean... I I also... Oh, go ahead. No, no, sorry, you go ahead, Jeremy. I was just going to say, I also see it in many ways, like um, 
the concept of the 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 uh, the occult, not the actual Tibetan concept of the tulpa, but you know the sort of popular occult idea of a tulpa as a you know a mind a thought form that becomes manifested, um, or the egregore that if if enough people um, will something into existence, then it becomes just as in just as real as you or I, <laughs> as it were. Mm, yeah, yeah. But doing that with a civilization. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. I mean, like, there's there's so much that I really like about this theory and 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 the work that you guys have done. I'm I'm fascinated with the idea of of lost civilizations and and a sort of a, a hidden history to Earth. I mean, as people who've put so much effort into creating something like this, has it given you an insight into other mysteries about Earth's history. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, there's a lot of speculation of, of as to how certain structures have been built. I'm thinking of, it, for example, in Baalbek, there's a, a temple that has blocks that weigh over a thousand tons, and there's no real obvious way that their civilization could do that. And not to say that they couldn't do it. This is I'm not going into like an ancient aliens kind of territory here. I, I you know, I definitely think that humans built these structures, but with the work you've done creating this narrative about Quatria, do you do you feel like you you've gained an insight into how these the other civilizations might have operated? I mean, do you, do you think that reality was just different? <laughs> yeah, I forget I forget who who said this, but there's some philosopher scientist that talks about maybe it's Rupert Sheldrake that the laws of of nature are not necessarily laws so much as they are habits. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that over time that they've they've modulated, um, which is an interesting idea. And you know, I don't have any proof one way or the other, but um, yeah, I mean, something to specifically speak about uh, this idea of um, of of works at a massive scale. I think there's two things that I want to say. Like you, you did you touched on the ancient aliens, and I think that's that's a great topic because I think that it's really fun to speculate about, but at the same time, I really love also conventional boring history. Like I've always been into that. Um, and so like one of the things I don't like about ancient alien stuff is that it gets people into this space where they're like, Oh, well humans couldn't have done that, but it's like humans are pretty amazing yeah. in both good and bad ways. So I would never count out, uh, what we what we could achieve on our own, you know, <laughs> you know. Um, but in terms of the, the Quatrian mythos, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is um, sort of how their magic system could have worked, you know. And one of the things I've I've come to, as Jeremy said, like magic and music were kind of intimately linked, and this is to me because of uh, frequencies as being sort of the fundamental nature of of reality. So. I've gone on this this kick of that they had the ability to manipulate um, matter waves. There's a there's an article about this on Wikipedia that I had never heard of until recently. But basically, this idea that matter is somewhere between a wave and a particle, whatever, whatever, um, and that somehow they had musical technology which allowed them to manipulate. Uh, matter at a fundamental level, and this kind of exists in "quote unquote" real science in the in cymatics or chymatics. I don't know if we should pronounce that with a hard or soft. <laughs> um, 
where if you vibrate like a metal plate at a given frequency, uh, it will form sort of these like uh, symmetrical patterns based on the vibration of the plate uh, caused by the sound. Um, so, you know, for me in, in the Quatrian Mythos, I think there are a lot of interesting possibilities of how could something like that have been applied uh, in a practical way. And I think that's one of the things I really like to do with Quatria as like a, as a sandbox is to pose a what if question and then try to come up with a plausible answer, at least within that, that realm or that universe, and then see like, well, is this even close to our reality or, or not? And um, over time, it, I found like the effect that I think you kind of see this with tarot cards, where um, part of what makes tarot cards so interesting and adaptable is that it's like a, an independent set of symbols that you can take and you can overlay on something, you know, like you often see adaptations of tarot set where it's like Charlie Brown characters or like uh, angels or like any, gummy bears gummy bear <laughs> on as tarot, you know, like whatever. But I think part of the, 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 the magic and the mystery of that set of symbols is that you can take them out and you can reapply them in other contexts. And suddenly it's giving you kind of like these weird new insights and for me, that's a lot of what Quatria is, is like, or has become is like this sort of set of ideas and, and methods of interpretation or, or of, of creation. Uh, and then you can go out into the world and you can kind of use it as a filter to be like, like we said before, like, oh, that's, that's so Quatrian, you know? Mm -hmm. And I would also say, um, you know, I, I also, my, my, uh, my interests are lied more towards the philosophical and mythical aspects of it. Um, and I like to think, um, you know, so uh, there's, there's the, the concept of the forest garden. Um, so are you familiar with, you know, the Amazon rainforest forest gardens at all? Um, I, I think so, but, but yeah, just, in so case, just in case I'm not, then please. Well, you know, so if I, for, for someone who understands themselves as part of nature. So to the indigenous Amazonian cultures, um, you know, it's it's like a garden of paradise. Uh, they they have you know abundant fruit trees. They have incredible amounts of species um, of plants all living together. And for the longest time, you know, Western white Europeans would come in and and they thought they didn't see it. They just saw it all as a jumble of jungle and thought like, oh, that's just you know this is how it grows. But, you know, sciences and, and historians have come to understand, um, which something that indigenous cultures have known for, you know, tens of thousands of years, that that's not actually true. Um, the Amazonian cultures have been tending the jungle to grow these fruits in specific places and specific areas. So to the Westerners' eye, because Westerns, Westerners have, you know, this idea of a separation between you know, nature and humans, it just looks like a big jungly mess. But if you understand yourself and you live there um, as being part of that system, um, you understand how to tend it so that, you know, you let it grow on its own and you participate in it so that it always will have, you know, fruit for you. Or, you know, you can always walk off the path and find some sort of leafy green just growing there. Um, it's all, you, you know, you're, you're part of that process and thinking mm -hmm. about quatrians in that way. Um, because I, my understanding of quatrian culture is that they did 
think that way. They thought of themselves as part of nature uh, has led me to understand different ways that humans could have done things. So for example, um, there's this concept of tree maps in Quatria. And what that is, is that there were map makers and what they would do um, is they would, they wouldn't, you know, draw a map on paper. What they would do is they would walk between two places and plant and tend trees and plants on the way. And so that if I wanted to travel to another Quatrian city, I'd start off on this path and I'd look for um, a line of hawthorn groves that were visible from, you know, each was visible from one to the other. And that's how, you know, I would sort of navigate through the Quatrian world using these maps that were actually um, trees planted in certain ways. Um, and of course, there wouldn't be any trace of that from our Western eyes. How would we be able to to even perceive or conceive of this as uh, a navigation method? Um, but there's no real justifiable reason why it wouldn't work perfectly well if you saw yourself as part of that same natural system. Hmm, yeah. A lot of the ideas that you, you're describing and you've included in 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 your writings and in in the, in the oracle as well, they do seem like a, a good way of jailbreaking yourself from sort of a semi-materialist mindset. I mean, even if you're deeply interested in these things, it, it can be hard sometimes to get away from thinking in a certain way, thinking in terms of, for example, the need for proof for something of, and when it comes to the supernatural, when actually I think part of understanding the supernatural is kind of definitely the liminal nature of of reality, but also that some things can't be measured or can be measured in a different way. I mean, do you think that's part of the the magic of what you're doing? Is that it's an it's an up it's a way to sort of engage in these ideas in a different manner? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big part of it has to do with the reality of experience, and your experience consists of a lot of things. You know, it consists of other people and of, of natural elements or uh, where you live, it, but it also consists of your inward things. And a lot of the times your, you know, your inward things, they're not, they're not less real or less important just because they're uh, invisible to the naked eye or to, to the eyes of others, you know, like those things are, are can be quite real and, and quite important. Um, and especially now I feel like, there's something really liberating in being able to engage with imagination in a healthy way uh, using like these kind of creative processes because we're so awash in like a world of just bullshit where everyone is lying about everything. It feels like all the time and it, it just seems like it's spiraling out of control and getting worse and worse. So I feel like for me, a lot of what working on this project has been, has been, sort of regaining control over my own sort of subconscious or my own like imagination world. And then using those tools to like come to better grips with reality and how I want to change reality. Um, instead of just being sort of like an escapist fantasy thing that, that just goes nowhere and comes to nothing, which can be fine too. That can be, uh, useful in its own way. But, um, for me, it's, it's become kind of like an active tool, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. And I'd even say, I'd go, uh, you know, I would even say that, um, you know, for me, like Anthor, 
the 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 stag spirit is real and um you know it's it because i believe very very sincerely that myths are stories that give life meaning um, therefore whether or not they are true in the provable or unprovable sense uh, is a moot point and anthor is uh you know a power um that that represents so each of the each of the quatrian powers kind of represents one sort of major um uh, a quality or aspect or something and and for so for acho the rock it's stability and for barbaro the the owl it's um ambiguity and then for anthor it's withstanding um it's the ability to withstand things and i think that for me um uh, with everything that's going on in the world right now um the ability to be able to withstand something um and this this is this you know these go back way before um Back when our biggest worry was climate change, <laughs> as opposed to all of the more immediate <laughs> horrifying worries that we're having right now, um, you know, the idea of um, having and finding the tools that will help you withstand things is really important to me. Um, and so for me, like I'll, you know, I have deer pictures in my house and, you know, I've taught my son about Anthor and, you know, how he's the deer spirit who you can turn to if you need help withstanding something. Um, and, you know, that's really been a, a powerful tool for me for getting through, you know, this past uh, decade, <laughs> but, but the past four years in particular here, uh, here in the United States. So. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I love the, the Oracle. I, all the cards just really sort of speak to me. I, and um, whenever I draw a, like, strife or stench i'm like oh no <laughs> but I, I mean i really like the um the double leg card it reminds me of a flying saucer so i um, oh yeah yeah so i like getting that one and i know that has a, a sasquatch connection too so i always feel it always feels good when i get double leg but yeah yeah no it's great i know exactly what you mean um about what you were saying about sort of about myth the quality of myth is not whether it really happened it doesn't it's another I feel like myth is another form of of reality, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Tim, do you, Tim, do you like... have a? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that I feel like something that's been happening the last four or five years is that it's almost been like there's been a war for your imagination, and uh, mm. it's not clear even who are the combatants, but it's often clear who is the loser. You're the loser when like other people get control of your inner world, you know, like when, when they're able to manipulate you into doing something or into believing something that's against your own interest, you know? So I think a big part of this for me is, is like reclaiming the power of the inner world and like knowing how to do it in a healthy way. Um, not just, you know, uh, believing in the most crazy thing that you can think of that's like also really dark and, and bad for you. Like, I don't want to go into too many specifics about, about some of the darker conspiracies out there, but I've seen a lot of damage uh, in that world over the, over the past few years. And it's, it's sad to see people lose control of their, their inner life and, and to not know which way is up anymore, you know? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Tim, um, using the Oracle, I mean, do you have a favorite card? Do you have a, have you found that using it has these the the magicians or the monsters have, have made themselves known more <laughs> in your life when i was when i was writing the book 
we were kind of only beginning uh, working on the the Oracle deck. So by the time that Jeremy had finished the deck and then I was kind of like rereading the book, it sort of made elements of the book jump out for me a lot more than they would have before. Um, I guess one of my big um, characters or cards in the whole thing is, is this figure of Wormwood who mm. uh, we know, we know this name uh, from the new Testament, you know, it's in the book of revelations uh, as being like this, this poison, poisonous, bitter star that falls. Um, but in, in the Quatria uh, mythos, I've, we've tried to kind of um, re- recast that idea and that, that figure so as a power of the hypogeum, uh, Wormwood stands for like sudden, dramatic, radical change. And I think um, this is a really scary, but a really interesting figure uh, mythologically, you know, like when we're suddenly having to face like really, really radical social or, or whatever changes in life, um, that figure has has drawn a lot of importance for me this year and interestingly in my garden this year uh i do have a lot of uh absinthe uh growing which is of the wormwood family and this year more than any other year it was exploding uh across my garden so i've definitely seen things from the book and and from our work kind of like cycle back out into physical reality and then that kind of gives you another boost for going back and, and working more in your, your fantasy world too, you know? Mm. Oh, excellent. That's really interesting. So what's next? What's, um, what's happening at the moment for you guys with, with Quatria? What are you, is it going to be, is it going to be another book? Yeah, I've got about half of the next book written, uh, where they end up at their destination and they sort of discover that, uh, things were not what they were expecting. And I think this is a big part of what the book is about for me. It's also like the, the first book as well as this one that I'm, the second one that I'm working on. Um, this idea that you can have a, an imagined or ideal or fantasy uh, that you project ahead of you and you, you think it's going to be a certain way. But then as you like approach the reality of that thing, it turns out to be really different and you have to kind of like accept how things are or change them uh, as you bring that fantasy into reality. So the book, uh, both the process itself and and the contents of the book are, are heavily about that. But yeah, um, working on the second one, I know uh, we've, we've got some changes that we want to make also to the, the Oracle deck where maybe Jeremy, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. We had actually talked about, <clears throat> so we, um, you know, these quatrian symbols aren't the only ones. Um, there were pl- there were many more. So we were actually talking about having an oracle deck um, that had ex- basically expansion packs um, so that, you know, you could theoretically you could just you could continue using it at, in its current form and it'll be just fine. Um, but you could also, um, you know, have a, a subscription to, you know, an update every few months where you would get additional cards which you could use to build the deck. Um, And then we were also talking about how um, there could be a technique using the deck um, where you weren't just um, passively accepting the reading. You could actually use the cards um, basically as a game to manipulate potential outcomes. So the cards themselves would become sort of a magical sort of uh, spellcasting tool, as it were. 
Um, and so we're working on developing that. Um, I'm also, I'm, I'm a few chapters into uh, a book of Quatrian mythology and folklore that is heavily uh, influenced by the symbols. I was hoping to get it done by the end of this year, but now that's not going to happen because of everything. Um, <laughs> so hopefully, you know, sometime next year, I'll, I'll have that finished and, and ready to roll. Um, but, you know, we also still write pretty frequently on Medium under, um, there's the Quatrian Folkways where people can, on Medium, that people can find some of these writings on, you know, and um, and then we, we share little tidbits of Quatrian folklore and and uh, myths and, and magic on our Twitter accounts all the time, too. There's also on Reddit, I'm running R Quatria, which is basically like different links and interesting bits that I find that, that seem to fit into this world and then sort of tumbling them around to figure out, you know, how do they fit? Uh, and that's starting to take off. There's starting to be a lot of, of interesting user interactions there. I really love Reddit as a platform. Um, in some ways, more than Twitter, I feel that it's like really kind of casual and fun and it's less less argumentative. Um, so I, I tend to spend a lot of more time over there. But I definitely write on Medium a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm always trying to find uh, the connections between um, other more well-known conspiracies and this world that we're both building and discovering and, and trying to figure out like how to mash them together and, and what makes sense to keep and what makes sense to throw out, you know? Mm, excellent. Well, I mean, have, have you been surprised at all by, by what's happened with, um, with your work writing about Quatria? Have people kind of interacted with you or contacted you about experiences that, they, that they've had after taking an interest in this? I would say it's more close friends at this point who have, who have had like the biggest uh, reaction to the work. And I would say that also we've probably made some friends because of it, uh, especially because of the Oracle deck, which I think has had the most visibility of any aspect of this uh, this universe so far. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I would also say, um, so I should probably mention that, um, you know, the, 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 our project Liminal Earth, um, which we were on to discuss earlier, which, you know, is a map of people's interesting um, paranormal or amazing or otherwise interesting experiences um, that we actually have been kind of putting Quatri and stuff out through that as well. Uh, we feel they're kind of related projects um, in as much as uh, the stories are things that give meaning to people. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we've gotten a lot of uh, good interactions and interest um, through the the liminal earth community as well. Um, which is, which is really cool. Um, we, they're, they're just, you know, I would also say that I have been pleasantly surprised by, um, you know, I, I, I guess I always anticipate that there's going to be re a reaction when people hear this is like, these are just two dudes making stuff up. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and there actually has not been that much, um, of that kind of pushback on that, which has been, um, very, very pleasantly surprising to me. Excellent. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, you guys have put together an amazingly thought provoking world. Yeah. I mean, yeah, guys, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking about Quadra. I know that this was the first podcast that, that you've come on to talk about it. So yeah, it's, it's been a real honor to talk to you uh, about, about this. Sure. Yeah. Um, if I could for having just plug, oops, sorry. If I could plug the website for one second too, um, 
please. is to pick up a copy of The Lost Direction, you can go to uh, lostbooks.ca. And there is both a print version on lulu.com, which I think is is probably my preferred version. And then there is an ebook version that's only available on Amazon. Um, that version is good too, but I really like the print version. It has like some uh, hand-drawn maps and stuff in it. And it has, it's a pocket size. So I think there's something for me about having grown up with um, books like that when I was a kid in that size, that format, that kind of like little cool magical book. Mm. Um, then for the Oracle deck, I think they go to liminal.earth slash Oracle, maybe I want to say. It's, yeah, what? you can go to liminal.earth slash Oracle. Um, let me just double check that real fast before I. Yeah, liminal.earth slash oracle, and that'll get you there. It gives you a big explanation of the entire deck. It takes you to a place where you can um, purchase one for yourself. And, um, you know, you can. We, we are always more than happy to take questions or um, insight or suggestion or even um, suggestions as to what some of the symbol meanings might be for people who use the oracle. Um, we want it to be sort of a, a back and forth sort of uh, crowdsourced divination tool. So, you know, if people say, well, I did this and and this is the meaning that it gave me, then, you know, maybe we'll include that in future uh, editions or iterations. Um, isn't, there, isn't there also a zine that you can download and print out that has like little miniature versions of the cards that you can use, right? There is, but uh, we don't have a downloadable version just yet. Uh, we're not shipping zines right now because neither uh, of us are comfortable going to the local post office and breathing that air. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, there is going to be a downloadable version that you can print out and and out your own cards and it's like five bucks and it has all the information in it as well so cool and if, and if people just want to find you guys um on twitter and stuff uh, how do they do that um i'm at at liminal earth or at puma culture p-u-m-a-c-u-l-t-u-r-e just like it sounds on twitter mm-hmm. that's the best place to find me yeah and i'm on twitter i am t flat with a p-h-t-p-h-l-a-t Cool. Well, excellent. I'll, I'll put all that information in the show notes. Excellent. Cool. Well, guys, yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been a really interesting chat. Yeah, thank you, too. Yeah, thank you so much, too. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. When I first read one of Jeremy's articles about Quatria earlier this year, I did wonder if it was part of a thought experiment, a new mythology allowing a more immersive way for people to engage with the idea of an ancient lost civilization, almost like an archaeology of the imagination. That's not to say there aren't physical ruins somewhere deep under the South Polar ice cap, naturally. Of course there are. To me, though, it seems that myth and story are a dimension of our reality, a fundamental part of our existence as important as any other. If there was a quote-unquote real civilization centred around Antarctica, millennia ago, then most likely any memory of it would survive longest through story and song, and in the collective unconscious of humankind, and the work of Tim, Jeremy and Garrett has tapped into that. I highly recommend getting a hold of The Lost Direction and The Oracle of the Hypogeum if this subject really interested you. Please also consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, also sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of the sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. And you can now also donate to some of the sphere 
via Kofi. This was the 50th episode of Some Other Sphere, which feels like another small milestone to acknowledge in the life of the podcast. The past 10 months or so have been such a testing, unpredictable time for everyone. And for me, it's been great to have something like this to focus on and be able to interview all the brilliant guests I've had on. Thank you so much to all of them and to you for listening. This is the last show of 2020, but it'll be back in January with something suitably spooky for wintertime. Until then, have a wonderful Christmas and a very happy new year. Of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children to hear sleigh bells in the snow I'm dreaming of a white Christmas With every Christmas card I write May your days be merry And bright And may all your Christmases be Christmas Eve.